Welcome to Willard Church of the Nazarene. We're glad you're here. We can't wait to share the service with you.
There's never been a love so great. He died so we could live. Then he rose up from that grave. Name another king like this. Now all authority forever belongs to him. He reigns in victory. Name another king. Luke 15, 11 to 24, the prodigal son. Okay, verse 11, and he said, a young man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Verse 14. Now he had spent every I'm sorry. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him, sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Verse 17. But when, he had came, but when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Verse 23, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and then began to celebrate. Good morning and happy Easter. And if there's someone that doesn't know me, I am Carol Tussing, a member of the church here. And one thing I need to tell you before I start my story, this is a story about part of my life. Um, When I was growing up, I could not bear to see anyone seriously ill or um, who had um, injuries. I just couldn't do it. I would leave the area. I just... Just couldn't deal with it. So you'll understand more as I go on. Um, My story is not to make you feel sad or feel sympathy. This is to tell you that no matter what you are dealing with, if you are a child of God, he is always nearby with his love and strength to help you. Owen and I got married on January 2nd, 1960. He was 22, and I recently had turned 19. Part of the marriage vows were in sickness and in health, which meant I would stick by him to be his helper in sickness and in health. Well, at age 19, sickness was far from my mind. However, two weeks after getting married, he started getting sick. I don't know if that was because of me or (laughs) He was vomiting frequently and feeling bad. That proceeded for a while, and finally he was diagnosed with a stomach ulcer. That issue went on for several years, of which he received treatment. Then on December 31st, 1971, he was rushed to the hospital with a ruptured ulcer. While the doctors and nurses were evaluating him and calling in a surgeon, I was walking around in a daze. 
And by the way, the surgeon that they found was named Dr. Cross. I had no family there, and I couldn't reach my pastor. We were living in a suburb of Columbus. The doctors were telling me, this is really serious business. Finally, my pastor got the message and came to the hospital to sit with me. In case you don't know, when a stomach ulcer perforates, the gastric juices are flowing throughout the body and poisoning the insides. The surgery to close the hole was successful, and God gave us both the love and strength to get through it. Then three and a half years later, he was having issues again, and adhesions had built up. More surgery was required, and I was alone in the hospital again. One of the volunteer ladies sat with me for a while because I was not handling it very well. However, again, surgery went fine, and there was God's love and strength. One evening in 1992, Owen came home from work and said he didn't feel well. Many times he doesn't have normal symptoms of an illness. He said his throat hurt so bad and went to bed and tried to sleep. Finally, about 3 a.m. in the morning, I got my sister. We were living near family then and took him to the hospital. The doctor examined him and said, he's having a heart attack. So he was transferred from Willard Hospital to Mansfield and was a patient in the hospital about 10 days then. After that, he had to go to Columbus to have angioplasty. And again, God's love and strength were right there. At the age of 57, which was 1995, Owen was diagnosed with prostate cancer. Surgery was performed, and the prostate was removed. After the surgery, the PSA level was increasing slowly, even though it was thought all cancer cells had been removed. So every three months, the tests had to be done. In 1997, another angioplasty was necessary to open the main artery to the heart. A stress test had been done, and it showed some abnormality, which resulted in a heart catheterization being performed. The doctor told me, his main artery is 99% blocked. I have him quiet and on heparin to thin his blood, until I can get him to Columbus for angioplasty. They weren't dealing with many heart issues in Mansfield at that time. Now, when the doctor is nervous, that's a concern. In that situation, though, God assured me everything would be okay. I just knew it. And it was, once they got him to Columbus, God's love and strength... I knew something was going on with the heart in 2005. I asked the cardiologist to do a a heart catheterization then. Guess what? Owen needed triple bypass surgery. That surgery went well, and there it was, God's love and strength. The PSA level kept climbing, and in 2009, Owen went to the Philadelphia Cancer Treatment Center of America. On Monday, he would drive to Columbus Airport and fly to Philadelphia. He would return on Friday afternoon. Various family members would, would accompany him for a week at a time. There is evaluation, then five weeks of radiation. But that put the PS level at less than 0.01. You know what I'm going to say next God's love and strength was just as strong as ever. The story still doesn't end. In 2019, he was diagnosed with COPD. It took a while for doctors to figure out the correct treatment. Therefore, I had to rush him to the ER several times because he had trouble breathing. Then the correct treatment was given, but not without God's love and strength. In August 1920, the kidney doctor said Owen would have to begin dialysis as he had stage 5 kidney disease. It had been brewing for several years. At that time, I thought I couldn't stand to see that happen. But God's love and strength showed me otherwise. 
when they first began dialysis, he had a port in his chest. They had to start dialysis in emergency and didn't have time to put in a graft or a fistula. Infection set in twice, and he was rushed to the hospital and was septic, which means the infection was in the blood. There were several not-so-good days then, but you guessed it, God's love and strength. Before the last hospitalization, he had gotten a bad sore on his toe, and nothing had been diagnosed with it. After testing, poor circulation was diagnosed in his feet and legs. After the last hospitalization and being septic, the doctor said he needed the big toe on the right foot and the tip of the second toe amputated. At that time, due to COVID, I could not even go to the hospital. I thought, I definitely can't stand for this to happen. But you know the answer, God's love and strength. There have now been three surgeries for amputations. In between all these major surgeries, there have been many less serious situations, but many times I had to take him to the ER, usually in the middle of the night and sit there by myself. But that love and strength sustained me. It can sustain you also if you will allow it. And today, Owen is... With us. All right, if you would, turn your Bibles to John chapter 20. We'll also be in Luke 15. Thank you, Mikey, for reading that. John chapter 20 and Luke 15. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the, some of the greatest running moments in the history of mankind. Are there any runners in the house? You used to run from God. There you go. <laughs> no runners in the house? Oh, you are all my people then, because I've heard there is this like euphoria that you get when you run and you have to run a couple miles. I have never experienced I think it's a lie. The only thing I've experienced is like stabbing pains in my chest, cramps, feeling like I needed to puke or anything like that. But I know there are people out there that do run, and, and maybe you're just being modest, but um, if we're looking at the greatest moments in running history, probably one of them that would rank up there was when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile barrier in 1954. He ran that in three minutes and 59.4 seconds, and I know that record didn't stand for long, but that has to rank up there as one of those great moments. I think the current world record is three minutes and 43 seconds by a guy from Morocco in 1999. I was surprised when I was looking that up that that uh, record has lasted that long. (laughs) Anyone? So I'm guessing nobody's run a marathon in here, right? No. Uh, uh, 26.2 miles. It's like running from here to Chipotle in Mansfield. (laughs) Now, I really like Chipotle. I really like Chipotle. I've had it twice this week, but I'm not running there, right? And, And if you're a person that would run a marathon, God bless you. I don't even like to drive that far anymore. I'm getting to that age where, no thank you, uh, let's just stay in town. Well, several years ago, Nike set out to see if somebody could run a marathon in under two hours. Under two hours. So they set up this race in Vienna, Austria, and they recruited this legendary marathoner from Kenya named Eliud Kipchoge. And he set out to run that marathon in under two hours. And he did it. He ran it, actually, in under two hours. He finished the marathon in one hour, 59 seconds, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds, meaning he averaged four-minute, 35-second miles for 26.2 miles. But it didn't count. It didn't count because it wasn't an open race. It was a specifically designed race just for Kipchoge, There were thousands of the people on the course. It would have looked like a a normal marathon race. It looked legit and official, but it was actually designed to be a very flat course with very few twists and turns. And they hired an elite group of runners to run around this man and to break the headwind so that he didn't have to run against that. They also had this computer that was in front of them, and it, it put a green light on the pavement so that he knew at exactly the right pace that he would have to run in order to beat that two-hour barrier. And he did it. 
but it didn't count. Now, don't feel bad for him because he has the official world record at two hours, one minute, 39 seconds today. Not too shabby, right? Since it's Easter, though, I thought I would throw in this one. It, it wasn't a timed race, but there was a race between two men one morning in the city of Jerusalem. You see, there was this group of men and women that were holed up. They were holed up in, I'd say, despair, maybe in doubt over what had happened the, the previous few days. There was news, though, that came running to them. Great news that the tomb was empty. And all of a sudden, a race broke out. We read about that in John chapter 20. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? The news that they received is the same news that we celebrate today. It's the type of news that you don't just sit around and talk about. It's the type of news that sends people running. It's the type of news that sets people into motion. It's the type of news that changes your course in life. John chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That would be John. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. Notice how fast they head to the tomb. It's not like, let me finish my breakfast, right, and then I'll get going, or let's wait till it warms up a little bit and we can get into the 70s and then we'll get moving. There's no discussion on whether or not they should go, right? No, just verse 4. They both were running. They entered the Easter morning 1,000-meter dash. Now, this wouldn't be a run on a track, but instead throughout the streets of Jerusalem, taking twists and turns, avoiding people, dodging in and out of them, maybe taking a shortcut through an alley. They're running, though. I guarantee you it was a full sprint. And this is John's account, so he's going to tell you who won. But the other disciple, that would be John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. While the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And listen to this. And he saw and believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, let it speak to our hearts. Father, soften our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears. Let us hear what you'd have us hear today here. Father, speak to us. Challenge us. Transform us to look more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Two guys in a race. The big story isn't who won this race. No, the big story was that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was alive. The big story is that Jesus moved first. And that's what I want us all to be reminded of today. The fact that God moves first in all of our stories. What do you mean? You see, before anyone knew, they needed an empty tomb. The stone was rolled away, right? Before you ever thought to yourself, this isn't working. Life just isn't working how I, I thought it should, and I am in need of someone to save me. God had already made the way and was reaching out to you with grace. I'm going to share something I learned for the first time this year, and, and, and that is that God has already done the, remost, the most remarkable running in the history of mankind. Jesus tells about it in Luke 15, if you'd turn there. He unfolds the story of all stories in this passage, the one that Mikey read. No one will ever write a story that can compare to these three parables that he gives to his followers. The story of the lost sheep, 
the story of the lost coin, and the story of the two lost sons. Or maybe you know it better as the story of the prodigal son. Whether you're a believer or not, everyone knows the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the son who says to his father, I know I have an inheritance coming, give it to me. Right? And the father complies. He gets that inheritance and he takes off for a faraway country. And what happens? Well, we don't know exactly what happens. We get the older brother's take, right? We get what the older brother thinks happened. But all we know for sure is that he squandered his money in wild living. He went broke. And he didn't have anyone to turn to. We also know that at some point in the story, he realizes what I'm doing isn't working. And we see in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, he decides to make a change. My friends, I hope all of us realize in here today that if you need to make a change, you can. If you come to the place where you realize things aren't working, I need to make a change, that can happen. That can happen today. Verse 20, so he set out and came to his father. Now, I preached this part of the story a few times. But I was reading this book called The Cross and the Prodigal by Kenneth Bailey. He is a scholar that lives actually in the Middle East and really studies this culture. And and I've really learned a lot from this book. I have it up here. As you can see, I've I've taken a few notes from it. I know some people like books like this. If you want to see it, you're more than welcome to. But it's really interesting. And, And at this point in the story, though, I had preached that the son realized what he had been doing, repented, and turned and came back. And he was on his way home to the father. But if you look at the speech that he's preparing to give his father, right before this point in the story, if you notice, his words were spoken before by another person. His speech where he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Was a, it was actually a paraphrase of what Pharaoh said to Moses after the first plague in Exodus ten sixteen. That's what Pharaoh said to Moses when he wanted the plague to be lifted. Very important. He wasn't repenting. He was just trying to manipulate the situation and get out of the mess. The younger son here was doing the same thing. The son was doing what we all try to do when we realize we mess up, right? We look for a way out when we have to face the consequences. And he was thinking, man, I messed up. I have to repay my dad and fix the situation. I'm not making any money here. There's a famine here. But I could go work for him, right? My dad's fair and generous with his workers. If I could just get in with them, then what? I could fix this. That's what he's thinking. How can I fix this? How can I pay him back? That's the speech that he has ready, right? But what happens? But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran. I said we're talking about greatest running events, right? He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And every time I read this, I'm amazed at the father who sees his child a long way off and doesn't have contempt for him. I would want my kid to know that he screwed up. I would make sure my kid knew he screwed up. But not this father. Instead, he has what? Compassion. He feels compassion. He doesn't just act with compassion, right? It's one thing to act with compassion. No, he feels compassion towards his son. And I hope somebody hears that today. When God sees you today, wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, can you just hear that? Maybe you've been out of the church for a long time doing your thing. Maybe you've been living a life that uh, you aren't proud of. Can you just hear that? He doesn't have contempt for you. He has compassion for you. That doesn't mean that consequences aren't real, right? It doesn't mean he's happy about your choices and my choices. It just means that he sees us. He sees how miserable we are in those choices. He knows how much it hurts us. He knows how devastating the consequences have been. And he looks at us 
and feels compassion. His heart goes out to you. And look at what happens. He runs to you. That's the image that Jesus wanted to convey about the Father. That's an incredible image. Now, I've told you, I had preached this before in the part about the younger son. I really focused in on what he said, and I considered that to be repentance, but I think I missed the real point of the story. The point of this story is that God is moving. Grace is extended, and we have the choice whether or not to repent. The choice whether or not we follow him. The first move is always his, though. We know the first of the three stories Jesus tells that one of the hundred sheep gets stuck right in a briar. That's not a big loss, one out of a hundred, but we know that God is the good shepherd. And so he moves to find the sheep. The sheep didn't repent, right? The sheep didn't cry out. The father sees the sheep is lost and goes after him. In the second story, we know that the lady had ten coins, but she lost one in the house. What does the woman do? She sweeps the house. She searches the house. She moves. And the woman represents God the Father. We know that God is searching for the lost coin. In this story, we've got a father with two sons. Both are lost. One might be said to be the person in the church. One might be said to be the person out of the church. Both are lost, and we see the, the Father represent, representing God the Father, creator of the heavens and the universe, right? We see, when he sees that his sons are lost, he goes to them. Each one of them. With the younger son, he doesn't just go to him. He runs to him. He runs to him. We don't understand this like it, it should be understood with our culture. But this is the craziest thing that Jesus could have said in this story. This is just nuts, right? What the Father runs? If you look through the eyes and the lens of someone living in the Middle East and in Palestine in the time of Jesus, no patriarch, no father would ever run in public. It just didn't happen. Why not? What was the big deal? Well, to run in public meant that you would have to pull up your robe, right? Tuck it in your belt, and then your legs would be exposed. Your legs would be out there. And that was severely or extremely disrespectful in this culture. It would have disgraced the father. It would have not only been an embarrassment to him, but it would have been an embarrassment to his entire village, his entire community. But this father says, the heck with it. I couldn't care less what the village thinks. I don't care that you may see my ankles, my knees, maybe even my thighs, right? Because I'm running towards my child. So the story shows God running to his son, and I believe this is, like I said, the greatest running story in the history of mankind. And this will make a little bit more sense as we go on, so hang on. But maybe you think this isn't a big deal. Because maybe when you picture, you picture this father, he's living out in the country, not surrounded by alone people. He's got a, a long driveway, right? And maybe when the father sees us come, his son come through those gates at the end of that long driveway, he takes off running, but there's nobody really there to see him. If you picture it that way, you're picturing it with a Western mindset. In the days of Jesus, people would live in community, we would assume that there's a village involved. When there is a village, there is that tight community and a very important reputation at stake. Reputation was everything for people in community. With that community in this time period, there would be something that would take place called the kazah. Jesus doesn't mention it, but it would have been on the minds of everyone listening to this story as he told it. There are certain things that if they happened in life would bring about the kazah. One of those things was if a person married somebody outside the faith, a kazah would happen. Another thing that would bring on a kazah would be if a Jewish person lost their inheritance among, the just, among Gentiles. And we know that's the exact thing that happened in this story. If that person did that, he would have to face the kazah if he wanted to return home. And he would have to face the kazah ceremony at the gates of the village. 
the ceremony would be led by, led by the elders of the village. The father of the boy would not be allowed to attend. The reason why is because in this culture, the father's blessing trumped community decisions. So they kept the father out of this. The mother was allowed to come. She could plead for her child. She could plead for mercy, but not the father. The elders of the city would hear out the boy and then decide his fate. If they decided that kazah was warranted, a word which means cutting off, they would throw a clay pot at the feet of this son, smash it on the ground, and say, you are now kazah. You are now cut off from our community. You are now cut off from your village. You are now cut off from your family and your faith, and you are not allowed to enter. And that's what this broken pot represented, the broken relationship between this boy and his mom and dad, his community, and his faith. It could not be repaired. He was simply cut off. So the son knew that not only did he have to face his father, but he also had to face the elders of the village, the kazah. And that's why he prepares the speech that he prepares, right? It's his only shot at getting through it through this ceremony, to work enough for my dad to pay the debt back. That's the plan. That's the plan. If he could tell the elders and put his plan into place to pay back the debt, then maybe they wouldn't cut him off from the village and he would be allowed back in. His plan to somehow try and earn his way back in. If you think about it, that's religion today. I've got to earn my way into the grace of God. Our relationship with God has been cut off, but if we try hard enough, we can fix it, right? That's his plan. The father has a different plan, though, right? And that's why he's watching the road. You see, the father knows Kazah is awaiting his son, and the only chance he has is if he can get to the sun before he faces Kazah. So that's why he's watching. He watches for him. And when he sees him a far way off, right, he has to tuck his robe in his belt and run to him before he gets to the gates of the city. Completely embarrassing himself, right, in the eyes of this culture, he runs to him. Do you get it? The greatest running event in the history of mankind. The father didn't care how embarrassing it was. Didn't, he didn't care what the other people thought. He just wanted to get to his son before Kazah, before the cutting off. The father is about to break customs. The father is about to break the rules to suffer the embarrassment, to suffer the scorn of the elders. Why? Well, it's right here. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, here comes the planned speech, right? Here comes religion. Here's how he's going to earn his way back. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we had been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. Can you see his father running to get to him before Kazah? Can you see him shouting, this is my boy. This is my child. He, is, he was dead, but he's alive. Put the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, right? Reconciliation happens. The father restores his son, and it trumps Kazah. So that when they came to the city gates together, the boy already had his father's robe on. 
He had the ring of his dad's authority. He had the shoes that elevated him above everyone else. And he was able to walk right past Kazah into the home where a party was going on. This, my friends, is the picture of the grace of God. Amen? Amen. This grace is extended to each and every one of us. Let me tell you, though, it's not cheap. When you look back to Good Friday, you see, you understand the price that it cost so that grace could be extended to you. When Jesus hung on that cross, he got kazah. He got cut off because of our sin. Do you remember his words in Matthew 27, 46? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God Almighty smashed the jar of our sins at the foot of the cross and said, you're cut off. So that all of us in this place today could get his open arms, right? to the Father, could come to that embrace and be welcomed home. He got kazah, and we got grace. Grace is being offered to you. My friends, it's not cheap, though. The younger son had a choice, like we all do today. He could refuse grace. He could refuse sonship. He could step forward with some kind of false humility and pride, and say, I'm going to pay my father back. I'm going to work my way back in. I'm going to pay for my sins, a.k.a. religion. Or he could accept the relationship. He could accept his father's grace and realize that it was only by his father's grace that he could get back past Kazah. That's a relationship with God that trumps Kazah. If we come to God and accept his grace, when we stand before him on judgment day, Jesus will come and intercede for us. He reconciles us. He restores us. He puts a robe on us, right? The robe of righteousness. His robe of righteousness. He puts a ring on our finger and sandals on our feet. He comes in and puts his arm around us. And that's how we get through judgment. That's how we're able to come into heaven and spend eternity with our Father. That's the good news. That's the good news of God's grace. That's what's available to you today. The boy thought, if I can just work off my debt. Haven't you ever thought that? If I can just make up for it. If I can just do enough good, that's what our culture tells us. That's the lie that our culture tells us. If you're a good person, you can make it into heaven. Our good works are filthy rags to a holy God, though. They will get us nowhere. They won't get us past because only a relationship with God the Father. My friends, you were created by God. And one day, you'll stand before God, and you will be judged. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. And at the end of your life, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to have to give that account. And if you're thinking you're going to give some kind of Pharaoh speech, some kind of speech like this boy had planned, I've sinned against you, but... I I made up for it. I I did this. I came to church, right? I I even tithed. I, I gave. Filthy rags. Those things are good. But you'll never cover your sin. It's only if you know Jesus Christ and accept him as Lord and Savior. It's only if you have that relationship with him and put on that robe of righteousness. His robe of righteousness that you can get past kazah, the cutting off. My prayer for you today 
is that you realize there is a God who came down from heaven, who moved first so that you could be saved. A God who died in the most humiliating, painful way on a cross to pay the price for your sin, for my sin, so that a way could be made to have a relationship with him, so that you and I could become sons and daughters and have Jesus Christ there standing with us on the day of judgment saying, this is my son, this is my daughter, this is my child, and walk us right past the judgment of God into a party. Amen? Praise team, if you'd come at this time. I don't know where you're at, right? I don't know where you're at. Maybe you are realizing today that you need somebody to save you. Maybe you've been doing the religion thing, and maybe you've been feeling a little guilty about that. I don't know. Whenever I did the religion thing, it never worked. It never lasted. I always screwed it up. Today, I hope and you realize that you can't do it. That your only hope is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you knew that at one time. Maybe you've been walking away from that, doing your own thing. Can I invite you back? Can I invite you to be a part of what God is doing? You can find a lot of other things to do that are fun, that are exciting, but nothing that compares to sharing the good news with other people. There is nothing in this world, and you can be a part of that with a church body. That's why I want to invite you to today to come back. Maybe you don't know him, right? Can I, can I lead you in a prayer in that endeavor? Would you, would you pray with me? Father, I know the way I'm doing things isn't working out. And Father, I'm just asking that you would save me. I know I've done things that I shouldn't have done. Father, would you forgive me? Lord, I believe that you love me, that you died for me, and that you are offering me your grace. Lord, I thank you for it, and I accept it. I ask that you would make me your child, that you would stand with me on judgment day. And Father, I will follow you all the days of my life, wherever you lead. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with a song. I believe that if you believe this and confess it, that you can become a child of God, that you can become saved. Is there anyone, just so I know, this is part of the confession, is there anyone that would raise their hand and said, I want to give my life to Christ and surrender everything to him? Is there anyone here, maybe for the first time, that you've done it? Or anybody here, maybe you've been gone. Maybe you've been doing your own thing and it's time to come back and give him your life. All right. Priest team, would you lead us in the celebration?
love